Hi and welcome to the Courageous Mama podcast. For those of you who are checking in today for the first time, this is a place where we can feel empowered, equipped and encouraged as a parent. If you're a seasoned traveller with me, you'll know that once a month I host a guest and once a month we explore the Enneagram. And we're going to do that over a period of nine months because it's a fabulous way of understanding the characters of our children and how to find their superpowers and how to help them to be happy, fulfilled, self-aware and learn to manage their own emotions. So come with me on that journey, whether you're a frequent flyer or whether you're new today. This week, it's our guest of the month, and I'm coming to you a week late this time because I popped off with one of my children to whiz down some ski slopes for a week. It was such a treat. And we were staying in a hotel that provided a buffet breakfast. My idea of heaven. Breakfast is far and away my favourite meal. So I was downstairs at first light whilst my son caught up with his beauty sleep. And in that time, I was surrounded by gorgeous little families. Ah, I remember the days. Now, just to reassure you, I'd like to say I don't go into places to judge people's parenting. But this was a fascinating place to sit each day because all you can do is take in the families around you. An absolute feast for a psychologist, I'm sure, and fascinating for me. Because what I noticed was the exertion that parents used to get their children to eat. And I felt for them. When our eldest was a toddler, he decided he wasn't very interested in food. And I tried coercing, rewarding, encouraging and doing that aeroplane spoon dance. Until one day I kind of woke up to myself and I thought, I'm not playing this game. It's your tummy. You decide. I won't force you. You don't look ill. You don't look underfed. Let's chill a bit. And I think that was probably the greatest gift I gave myself. But I do remember the counterintuitive effort it took not to allow it to become a game that he would surely win or a way for him to feel disempowered and thereby feel the need to exert control. So as I looked around the dining room on this little ski holiday, I witnessed a couple of scenes that I really felt compassion for. One woman was standing next to a child, she looked about seven, and she was forcing her to eat spoonfuls of yoghurt. And I thought, gosh, that's a surefire way to end up with a rebellious teenager. That child did not want to eat that yoghurt, <laughs> but she had to. And one dad was so exasperated with his toddler, looked about 18 months old, the toddler, not the dad, obviously, and wouldn't drink her bottle of milk. And so after some frustration, he actually shunted it a little bit too hard into her face. And then poor thing, he looked terribly sheepish, aware that he'd done it in front of a whole dining room full of people. The little one, on the other hand, looked very smug, because guess who won that game? So let's talk about food. I've invited Emma Shufkett onto the podcast. She's a dietitian specialising in childhood nutrition for babies, toddlers and all children. Her own daughter's a fussy eater, so she's done the hard yards and she covers fussy eating, restrictive eating, allergies, weaning, constipation, nutritional deficiencies, growth concerns and weight management. And during our conversation, I was interested to hear all the different ways that the control game plays out in the eating space. 
and I've even learned the perils of praising a child for eating. She covers many of the difficulties and the disorders and the conditions and at the end she shares her own very difficult and courageous journey of becoming a mother. I started by asking her the reasons why children can be picky about their food. Oh, number of different reasons for this. I would say in particular, I think sometimes there's quite a lot of pressure around parents and getting right a lot of pressure for um, children as well with eating. And I think sometimes parents' anxiety and I think there's lots and lots of pressure on parents now with social media and everything else about producing these beautiful plates and their children eating all this food. And I think sometimes a lot of that pressure relates to then children not wanting to eat the, the food that the parents present. I think as well with um, picky eaters and fussy eaters, I think sometimes as parents, we just want our child to eat something. We get really worried that they're not getting all the nutrients that they need. So sometimes we get into the rut where we just make the same meal over and over and over again, and we stop exposing our children to different foods. So a lot of the time I get parents who say to me, although they don't eat any vegetables, and I'm like, well, when did you last expose them to a carrot or something like well I don't give them to them because they'll never eat it and it's like but if you never expose a child to something how are they ever going to eat something new in the same way with you you're never going to eat something new if you're never exposed to it and you've never tried it so I think there's lots of things around that other strategies things like messy play just letting children play with food I think in society we've got a lot of pressure again around children must sit at a table they must must use a knife and fork they must eat in a certain way but when they're really young there's actually like 32 steps to eating. And the first steps of eating are just being around the food. So getting them involved in cooking and baking and touching the food, eating as a family so that they see you eating that food and just generally being around food and being involved in food. And you're not going to go from eating a food you've never seen before necessarily first time anyway you've got to touch it you've got to play with it you've got to be exposed to it so again it's just exposing children to food and getting them involved in the kitchen and getting them baking and helping you and just being around food it has a big impact you know in society as well today we often don't have time people don't sit down and eat meals together so children don't experience what it's like to have family time and family meals and I think that has a big impact on children as well eating on your own you don't go out to a restaurant and eat on your own every night you know like it's not that fun eating on your own so eating as a family I think is really important and I know that's not doable for a lot of families every night but even if it's at the weekend getting your children involved in food I think is really really important great okay so there did you say 32 steps yeah 32 steps to eating (laughs) we can't go through all of those but no and you don't need to go through all of those that would be in extreme cases so I see a lot of children extreme I call extreme fussy eaters and restrictive eaters so sometimes it's a good method to work them up through those different steps so parents can see a progress but no for a typical fussy eater you might be much further up the ladder on like step 25 26 which is presenting the food on a plate and they're just touching it for the first time and then they might work their way up their arm give it a kiss that sort of level so they're not at the stage where they can't even stand being in the room with the food to some of the children the extreme fussy eaters I work with are at that stage so and if you eliminate things like never having met the carrot before and <laughs> or kissed it or, or baby <laughs> and you've you've got a family who you know they eat together and the child is just 
resisting. What other reasons would you throw in there? Other reasons as well can be age related. So it's also important to remember around 18 months to two years, children go through what we call the neophobic stage, which is basically a fear of new foods. And it goes back to basically when we were hunter gatherers and children around that age were obviously a lot more mobile. So instead of eating everything, so parents will come to me and well, they weaned beautifully, they get every vegetable going. Why are they suddenly refusing food now? And it's often linked to the fact that food would have been dangerous in those times. So when children were mobile, there was a thing that they shouldn't then eat everything. So it's almost a developmental stage that you've got to work your way through. That can have a big impact, especially around the 18 months, two years. And parents can literally tear their hair out going, but why did my child eat so well? And now they're not. And also around the age they gain, I'm sure you're very aware of and talk, I know a lot on your podcast about, about the independent stage as well, where, uh, you know, they can start to say no and they can exert some control. And food is one area where a child can exert some control over. They don't have much control at 18 months, two years old, but food is one where they can control it. So you have those factors as well. And it's a big thing that happens around that age. Yes. And as you know, I'm big on kind of I manage me, you manage you. So yes. what sort of pointers would you say to a parent where you felt that there wasn't a neophobic issue going on and there wasn't a health issue? They just needed to work out the control issue. Yes. And there's um, a lady called Ella Zach and she developed the whole what we call division of responsibility which is the whole idea around as a parent, you provide the food and what's presented and your child decides what they eat and how much they eat. And it's always important to remember that. Just to drill down on that, you're not suggesting that you put 32 options on the table and the child goes, and I'll have the caviar. You're deciding what goes on the table. They decide whether to eat it or not. Yes. So you, yeah. So you're cooking the meal as the mom or dad or whoever's cooking the meal. So you present the food and then your child decides how much they're going to eat of that food. So they have the control that way, but you're in charge of what, what's presented. Okay. I would put a caveat on that, though. For an extreme fussy eater and you've got a child who eats very few foods, you're always going to have to produce something that's a safe food for them to guarantee that they do eat something. Yes. So there are cases around that as well. Yes. So there you are. You've put your stuff on the table and you've got your safe food in among it. And the child still doesn't want to eat. Now, at that point, I think a lot of mums start to panic a bit, don't they? So tell me, how long can a child go without food before mum or dad should be panicking? I would say look at it over a whole week because there's lots of eating opportunities. And if they don't eat one dinner, it's not the end of the world. So again, look at it over that whole week, not just that one particular day. Your child could be unwell. There could be a number of things going on. They could be really tired and stressed from nursery or school as well. So try not to worry about every single meal. I would very much say if your child's regularly not eating meals, I'd very much like to go back and look at a schedule in terms of when they are eating. So when's breakfast? Is there snacks? Are they too close to dinner time? You know, and all of those things looking through that day, are they having, for example, I see quite a lot with children having a lot of milk. So they're having lots and lots of milk, way too much milk throughout the whole day. And then they don't eat anything because they're full up on milk. So also remembering that at that age, their stomach is tiny, really tiny. And actually children after one years old, they have a massive growth spot up to one and they actually eat more. But that 
one to two years old, they actually eat less than often what they would have eaten at one because their appetite really decreases at that age because they're not growing at the same rate that they were when they were growing from newborn to one, where they have this massive growth spurt. And that panics parents as well. And they go, well, they had way more when they were weaning and why are they eating less? And that's because they just don't need quite as many calories. So having that in the back of your mind, I think there's a lot of sometimes big portions, which can be very overwhelming for little children. And so start small. If you're having your family style meals, where your child, the food's in the middle of the table, they can always have seconds if they want extra. So you can always start with a really small portion so you don't overwhelm them. And then if you have sat down and you, as I say, they haven't eaten their dinner, I think a lot of parents are going to struggle to not feed them at all before they go to sleep. So within an hour, you can be almost certain that child is going to say, I want a biscuit or I want. (laughs) And also there's nothing that triggers a child on the control issue more than watching a parent get anxious over food. So that sort of incites them to realize, oh, I can control mom or dad with this button on my remote control. What would you say about the rest of the evening once they've refused their meal? So if they've refused their meal, I wouldn't make a fuss about it because the more fuss you make about it, that's still attention. So by getting attention, like you said, they're pushing buttons and therefore they know it's stressing mum out. So therefore mum's probably more likely to cave and give in to them. So I would just literally be right. Take the plate away. No fuss, no mention of the food. Move on. If before bed and they're underweight, for example, my little girl is, I often do do a bedtime snack. Now, a bedtime snack isn't anything really fun or exciting. It's not sweets. It's not biscuits and stuff. It's a balanced mini meal. So, for example, we might do like cheese and crackers with some fruit or we might do peanut butter and apples or something like that. Something that's got protein, fat, carbohydrate, something they can have before they go to bed. But you've left enough of a time scale. So it's not an additional option. So they've not cooked another meal for them but they're giving them another opportunity to eat. So you view it as another opportunity to eat. And it's two hours after the meal, for example, it's not a replacement meal. So that is an option, especially if a child is underweight and really not eating particularly well. And would you wait the full two hours? I mean, what if I... Depends on your child and your schedule and how, you know, I, I mean, I'm just going on my child because again, she's a bit older and she's sick. So therefore two hours is about by the time she's going to bed from a meal time. But obviously you work it out based on the age of your child and the schedule, but you don't want it literally 10 minutes later. Yes, because they'll just learn, actually, I can turn my meal away and 10 minutes yeah. later I'll get another and one. so I'm going to get something else cooked for me so you don't want to be you don't want to become what we call the short cook so you're cooking meals for every single different person then you're cooking another meal so it's important that you don't get into that situation because a child will always you know a lot of children not every child but a lot of children will crave you know that beige food you know all the chicken nuggets and chips because it's easy to eat it's uniform it's the same every time they know what they're going to get But it's good to have some variety. And if your child's not underweight and there's not extreme fussy eating, restrictive eating, which is completely different from this situation, then you can have those chicken nuggets and chips, you know, once a day. And I always say it's good to do some meal planning, get your child, depending on obviously their age, but get them involved. So one night is their favorite meal. One night is mum's favorite meal. One night is dad's favorite meal. So you're getting that variety in as well. And everyone has those opportunities to be involved yeah and just to be clear as a dietitian if you don't give them that evening meal because they don't want it will they be alive in the morning yes they will be <laughs> <laughs> i might give you a bad night but <laughs> yes. 
So going back to some of the reasons, I know there are some dietetic reasons why they might not want to eat, but one of the things that I have noticed generationally, so my eldest is 28, but I meet a lot of young mums in, in the work that I do. And also I ran a baby and toddler group for four years, which I absolutely loved. And I noticed that they give them snacks the whole time. Now, in my generation, they'd have had a piece of fruit between breakfast and lunch, and they might have a sweet snack at sort of four o'clock. We used to call it our four o'clock. But there wasn't this constant sort of array of packets that came out of the handbag. What's your take on that? I mean, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm really interested. No, no, um, no, I, I agree with you. I think especially if your child's not eating meals and stuff, it's really important that you have breakfast, a mid-morning snack, especially when they're young. It is important to have the snacks because the snacks give them eating opportunities and give them calories and protein and things like that. But yes breakfast, mid-morning snack, lunch, mid-afternoon snack, just like you did, dinner. And again, if you're trying for weight gain and other things, you might add in a third snack before bed as well. But yes, there's no reason to have snacks continuously throughout the day. And I always say that snacks should be what we call mini meals. So they should include some carbohydrate, some protein, fat, fruit and vegetables. So view them as little meals you can give a child a packet of crisps, but it's got no real nutritional value. It has a carbohydrate, but it hasn't got any protein in it. So it's not going to fill them up and it hasn't got that opportunity for the fruit and vegetables. So the packet of crisps is okay, but mix it with some protein. Think of it as like a little mini meal each time. So they're getting all the nutrients they need. So just to be clear, because there are an awful lot of packets that purport to be healthy, don't they? They're sort of dried fruit crisps or um, <laughs> vegetable crisps. So are you eliminating all of those as well? I wouldn't say you have to eliminate all of them because, you know, you're going to they're going to be exposed to them. I don't agree necessarily with restricting foods because I think in the long run, all that does is make the child crave that food more. So I very much believe in an intuitive kind of eating approach. But there's lots of other they don't have to be at every single snack. You know, you can make things like crackers, cheese and biscuits, you know, grapes, peanut butter. You can bring those kind of I mean, maybe not peanut butter if you've got nut allergies out and about but you know there are opportunities rice cakes things like that they don't have to be pre-packed snacks every time and I'm not saying you're never going to not have pre-packed snacks because sometimes in life life is hard enough being a parent that you know occasionally that's absolutely fine but I'm just saying you can be more adventurous and think about iron rich options as well and would you say it's a bad thing to be hungry I mean do we have to feed a child immediately because they're hungry no not at all again it's really important that you learn and like we always say that children are intuitive eaters so it's really important they learn about hunger cues as well so for example with my child recently I found that I was giving her a snack after school but what I was finding is she really wasn't eating any dinner then so she now comes out of school and says I'm really really hungry but what I do is I make sure I brought her dinner a little bit earlier to more like 4.30 and then she has dinner and I find she'll eat whole pasta and she'll eat quite a lot of food. So I think it's working with your child and it's okay for them to be hungry. If your food's going to be prepared in the next 10, 15 minutes or so, or even half an hour, it's okay for them to experience hunger because it's important we learn what hunger feels like so that when we're adults... We know that it's okay to feel hunger and I feel hungry and I feel full as well. And learning those things are really important things. Because hunger can get confused with boredom, can't it? Yes. Fullness definitely. can get confused with distraction. Yep. So just race us through those then. How would you avoid the distraction issues around dinner? Yeah, so I try and not have distractions if you can. 
Sometimes it's a case of working towards it. If your child's used to having an iPad and a TV and stuff when they're there, it's going to be hard to necessarily go cold turkey. So you might do it over stages of a couple of minutes rather than, you know, and reducing the time down. Ideally, yes, distractions. It's better to not have your child watching an iPad and stuff. But there are times when, like, for example, my child does watch an iPad and she eats a bit more. You know, there are times when they're really tired. No one's perfect and you're not going to achieve it every time. But that's what's nice about having family meals is that if you're all sitting down and talking and the food's there, you don't necessarily need those distractions. But if your child's eating on their own, sometimes that's when I think the distractions can creep in. But again, it all depends on the child. Because again, with the extreme restrictive eaters, sometimes you do resort to the TV as well. So again, it all depends on your child. But I think sometimes expecting parents to go cold turkey when they're used to it is a case of going minute by minute. And slowly trying to remove it. But yes, because it, the other thing with distractions is that sometimes children overeat or they undereat and they're not learning again those hunger cues like, am I full? How do I feel? And you're not getting those feelings as well. Mm, because their concentration. Yeah. Another thing I'm interested in is what happens physiologically to the stomach when you're anxious? That means it's hard to eat. So, for example, your body will go into what we call the fight flight response. So it's basically goes back to, again, those great hunter-gatherer days that aren't really that relevant today. But when you were running away from your saber-tooth tiger, you don't need, your body does not need to worry about digesting food. It is not relevant. You are running away to survive. And that we have exactly the same response still today. So when you're anxious or you're worried, you don't feel like eating. So reducing anxiety at mealtimes is one of my biggest things to parents. And sometimes when I first see parents, I'm literally like, they're like, oh, mealtimes are a battle. Everyone's crying. Everyone's trying to force people to eat. And I'm just like, right, stop. All we're going to do is make mealtimes happy again. We're not going to worry about introducing new foods. We're just going to focus on making mealtimes fun, happy, so that your child comes to that table without feeling like they're going to be either force fed or made to sit there for hours or have any kind of stress and I would say things like playing some music having theme nights making it fun so that your child's anxiety is reduced and then they are much more likely to eat and what else would you ask a new client so you've eliminated the fact that mealtime is not a pleasant experience what, what would your other key questions be again I would go right back to when they started weaning so I would look back to how they were weaned because Sometimes with parents, there's lots of fear around choking and things like that. So they don't wean through different textures. So I see a lot of children who have only had sort of pureed right up till they were 12 months old or, you know, and they've missed that opportunity. And that is very much around that sort of nine, 10 months. If children don't have a lot of textures around there and lumps and bumps in their food, then it can be quite hard for them to get used to textures. So I look very much right back to when they were first wean I also look at things like if they've had allergies reflux because think of it as like a baby or you know a young child if they've had a traumatic experience or pain associated with eating then their experience of eating isn't a positive one so again that can have an impact later in life and sometimes you need to go right the way back to basically when they were born and understand what happened to them and if that was the case how do you overcome that it's about working with the parent. And again, it's normally that mealtimes have become really, really stressful. So again, I normally look at trying to make mealtimes stress-free. But getting the child involved with things like messy play. 
so that food becomes fun again. So I say things like hide your favorite tractors or your car or your dolly or something in the food, play with the food, get one of those trays and put lots of different sources. And you can start with dry food if your child's got lots of sensory issues and work your way through like wet food and they can play with it. You get involved as well. You play with that food. And if it involves touching it and if they lick it and things like that, it's all about trying to reduce that stress associated with meals and making food feel like a nice experience again and not something that causes them a lot of stress. I'm just interrupting this week's podcast for a little diversion. Over the past few weeks, I've had some great conversations with many of you. Because in November and December, I added the option of a 15-minute chat for those who would like to, if you buy the book. And I've realised through those conversations that people would like some more information on what parent coaching involves. I use the word coaching, but I also use the word consulting and sometimes mentoring because it doesn't sort of wholly fit in any of those categories. They're all client-led, but a coach tends not to advise where a consultant does. So I see what the client needs and some parents want to work out their own solutions and some want some parenting tools and advice to get them out of whatever spot that they're in that they need help for. They still make their own choices, but with some ideas to choose from. I used to see only two clients a week. It was all I could do with home education and fostering. But now that I'm not home educating, I've had space for a few more. I still have a cap on it because we do foster, but I do have clients every week and I have some wonderful emails and texts and had conversations with parents that I've supported over the last 14 years, including comments like, this has saved our marriage. So some people might be heading to marriage counselling and realise actually what they're arguing about is their different parenting styles. So when they can get that sorted out, they realise their marriage is in fine form. And another person said, the volume has come down in our house. Someone else said, I don't feel constantly out of control anymore. Another, I don't compare myself to other parents anymore. In fact, I've had that quite a lot. But one of my favourites was a picture of a beautiful and appreciative and loving card to a mum from her daughter. The daughter wasn't speaking to either of her parents. But they came and they had some sessions and they had a great outcome. And a year down the line, she patched in just to tell me how well it was going. And that really warms my heart. A session typically involves a parent or parents wanting space to share something that they'd like to find a solution for in family life. For example, there might be clashes between a child and parent or two children. Some boundary issues over chores, phones, friends, times, times they come in, times they go out, times they get up, times they don't. Or there may be a school issue or quite commonly parents that love each other dearly but have those different parenting styles I alluded to earlier. And the children, they find the gaps, don't they? They divide and conquer. So we really get on top of that. And then there are eating difficulties, neurodiversity, a trauma in the family. Over the last number of years, I've seen wide and varied reasons for parents to need a little bit of support and just time of their own to chat through their issue and get past their hurdles. And there's a link in the show notes with more information and a page on my website where you can find out more. The Making Food 
feel like a nice experience again and not something that causes them a lot of stress. So there are a few things I'm just going to pull from there that I think have been really significant. One is just really getting familiar with food. Two is don't always pander to your child's needs, but actually give everybody else's favourites a chance to go on the table. And three is to not show that you're stressed when they haven't eaten it. Now, we all have different things that we call anxiety, but I would even say just coercing and virtually begging. <laughs> yeah, that is that is pressure. We classify that as pressure. So is praise and things like that as well. So saying, oh, well done, you've eaten two peas. You don't need to talk about the food at the table. You can praise them for sitting at the table. You can praise them for using their fork really nicely. You can praise them for serving mum and dad really nicely. But you don't need to praise them for, if I sat there when you were at a restaurant and went, oh, well done, you've had that potato. Well done, you've eaten that. That would drive you insane within about five minutes. So you don't need to praise them for every mouthful of food. And that is pressure. So I think that's really that important you've said that. That's fantastic. So take the pressure off. and and. A lot of people wouldn't see that as pressure. They no. would see that as positive. But, but actually, but if you think doing... of it the other way and someone was doing it to you, that would really annoy you <laughs> within about five minutes. It would also give me a tool to manipulate my yeah. mum and think, okay, so you really, really want me to eat this. What if I don't want to eat it because you took my iPad away? It's a manipulative tool that we're handing them on a plate, pardon yeah. the pun. Mm. We are, yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So it seems that whether or not there was reflux, whether there was trauma, whether there's anxiety, it's all coming back to the same thing, isn't it? It's putting things out, allowing them to play and fiddle and giving them the right to refuse, taking it away without anxiety. It seems like it is a four step move, whatever the issue is. Definitely. It's definitely about following those steps. And I get it as well. When you're anxious and you're worried about your child, you you don't necessarily mean to apply pressure to your child. But I would say if you're really stressed, just go out of the room, leave them for two minutes, have your scream upstairs, have your thing, take a breath and then come back down again. So you're not showing that anxiety and stress to them. And then let me ask you, what are parents worrying about? Are they worrying about rhythm? Are they worrying about underweightness? Underweightness is definitely a concern. Protein, I get a lot of parents worry about protein and children don't need that much protein. And actually they get most children that I see get way more protein than they need. But that is one of the biggest things. Iron is another one. Because if your child is iron deficient, they will actually eat less food. So I often see a lot of children that are lacking iron in their diet so that's another area that I get a lot on it's interesting because I can be iron deficient that's been an issue for me over a few years and I will get hungry for sweets and snacks and sugar because you get low on energy yeah that's interesting that you say that can cause that I wish it did cause me to want to eat less but that's not my experience yeah no with young in young children in particular sometimes when they're really iron deficient they actually restrict more and more as well so it can be quite a trigger interesting so going back to a parent being concerned about whether there's enough iron and protein just talk us through what you would like to see a child eat in a day now I know there are different ages of children (laughs) but give, give us a rough guide obviously some kind of breakfast 
preferably something iron rich so you get a lot of like fortified cereals lots of children will eat cereal so things like Weetabix are great ready bread things like that all of those are fortified you even get all the fortified breads as well nowadays so if you're really worried about your child's iron intake and they don't for example eat a lot of meat and they don't eat a lot of iron rich foods you can get like vitamin boost breads and things like that as well nowadays so there's lots of opportunities if you are worried about your child, to have that for breakfast. That's interesting because for me, that's brown food. I think we've got to that stage of life where we're like, oh gosh, you know, need to up my veggies, up my protein. And that's what we get shouted at us the whole time. But yet you're saying Weetabix and bread are okay for breakfast. Yeah, yeah, for breakfast. Your child wants to have some kind of carbohydrate. They want to have some protein as well. So things like eggs, again, really high in iron. They're a really good option for breakfast as well. Some kind of milk, cow's milk or an alternative milk. So you're getting some calcium in there and some fruit as well. It's always a good option. Because again, it's vitamin C, which helps them then absorb the iron. Obviously, those are options, different options to give, not all of them. I mean, I'm lucky if my child eats a quarter piece toast. So, you know. Yeah. I make things like energy balls because my child really doesn't like breakfast. So I make like their oats and peanut butter and things like that. Peanut butter is a great one as well. Any kind of nut butter because it's really high in iron. And the yeah. other thing that I make for my child sometimes is like smoothie bowls as well. Because again, she's not very keen on eating breakfast. Come on, tell, us what a, tell us what a smoothie bowl is. in case. So I put know. things like, well, I'm trying to really get my child's weight up. So she won't drink cow's milk. She had a milk allergy, but she just doesn't like it. So she'll have soy milk in it. She has full fat yogurt in it, fruits and frozen fruit, which I blend up. I'll add a big scoop of peanut butter in. I often add seeds and I just blend it up and give her a straw, give her a bowl and she'll drink some of that but it can be in a glass it can be however you want and that would be breakfast or a mid-morning snack breakfast for her because my child is very reluctant to eat breakfast (laughs) especially before school (laughs) and do you think some I know I am going to go on to ask you about the rest of the day but do you think some people just are breakfast people and some people aren't oh yeah definitely everyone's different and everyone has different rhythms yeah no my child will eat much better later on the day than she will first thing in the morning so going throughout the day then we've done breakfast so going through the rest of the day what sort of breakdown of protein vegetable carbs would you like to see so carbohydrates normally around depending on the age of a child but say about 50 percent of their diet so it's similar to what we use what we call the eat well plate so if you've ever looked at that you've got your carbohydrates your proteins for about 25 percent roughly your fats, which is obviously a much smaller proportion. Then you've got your fruit and veg as well, which again- They're nervous of fats, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But for young children, it's really important to have full fat, especially up to like sort of two and a half years old. You want to be having full fat milk. And you can get that again out of the nuts, can't you? Yes, you can, yeah. And then of course there's allergies, aren't there? So there are going to be parents thinking, well, are they allergic to it? Do they just- not like it how do you spot an allergy again depends on the type of allergy so if it's what we call an ig allergy which is an immediate reaction that normally gets identified either when the child's breastfed or potentially when they start weaning so for example like the nuts it'll be an immediate reaction they potentially get highs respiratory then your child would hopefully be referred to an allergy specialist and you'd be under a hospital and that food would then be avoided And if the hospital agrees, then they would potentially do, you know, hospital reintroduction. So that's a totally different path. What we call non-IG allergies are non-immediate. So, for example, that's what my child had to cow's milk and egg. 
that was picked up about when she was about three months old. They tend to be reactions within two to 48 hours, tend to be more gastro, sometimes skin. Each child has different, different reactions. But again, they're delayed. And normally with a non-ideology, allergy, for example, to milk, we would expect the child to grow out of it by the time they're school age. And we do a reintroduction where we introduce something called the milk ladder, which is a step-by-step approach to reintroduce the food. And each step has a different amount of the protein in it. And you've been working your way up to the cow's milk. And would you say of the people that come to you, it's common for them to have, have allergies or is it more common for them to just need to put a bit of a routine in place? Normally with an allergy, for example, like even a non especially with like, I see a lot of children with cow's milk allergy. So that's kind of my area, like speciality, having lived through it as a mum and as a dietitian, They've normally had quite extreme reactions, really bad reflux, really uncomfortable baby when they're really little. So it's normally identified quite early on. So yeah, whereas I would say that the fussy eating side is different because again, they're normally... A child might not like something, but it doesn't mean they're reacting. So I would be going through going, do they get gastro symptoms? Do they get reflux? Do they vomit? You know, like what are the reactions you're getting when your child is exposed to that milk? So, for example, with my child, she had milk. It took us to like three and a half to get to the top of the ladder. If she'd had a white sauce and she was a year and a half old, within two hours, she'd be screaming and scrunching her legs up and her tummy would really, really hurt. So I know that that was the reaction to milk. So it's normally parents know when their child's reacting to the milk. One of our children stopped wanting to eat. And, you know, I was flummoxed as a mom, couldn't work it out. But he was quite constipated. So Mm. I thought, well, it's got to be that intuitively he's not coming out. He doesn't want to put it in. (laughs) And my sister was an allergist. And I said, you know, what would you take out of the diet? She said, well, try taking milk out overnight, overnight different creature and Mm. loving his food of course that's not necessarily a common thing it just happened to be no no it is it constipation is another symptom of cow's milk allergy as well constipation can be quite a big symptom and it can also be very common with fussy eaters as well so constipation has a big impact on eating it's one of the things I will ask as well is are they opening the bowels each day if not how often are they opening them and if they're going three to five days then yeah it's the same with us if you feel really constipated you don't feel like eating so you have to address the constipation first before they're necessarily going to start improve eating. Yes, brilliant. There's so many different reasons to be looking at, aren't there, or, or symptoms. Let's talk about using food as a bribe or reward. I realise we're back to the sort of social side of eating here rather than necessarily the gut side. Do you have a take on that? What about bribing? Oh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not keen on using food at all as a reward. I don't think it helps you as a parent. It doesn't help children in particular learn about food and having a good relationship with food, which is what we really want. So as your child's growing up, we want them to have a good relationship with food. We want them to be in a situation when they're an adult where they understand what hunger and, you know, how to feel full and all of those things. And bribing your child with sweets because they do something isn't isn't there's loads of other options and good ways of rewarding your child without it having to be food based. And what could they be? Because I mean, I know I've fallen for that myself in the past. I might go off on a, a walk with some sweets in my pocket thinking, well, <laughs> I'll pull these out if they're getting a bit. Or you might be, you know, going through town and you think, well, if you can, if you can just put up with this shop and that shop, then we'll go and get a nice hot chocolate. I can, you know, I can sort of hear myself doing it. Yet 
I would know now that that's probably really unhelpful. It's not, but I'm saying, you know, like if you're in a supermarket and you're going for a nice hot chocolate, that's still a social situation where you're all sitting down and having a hot chocolate. I wouldn't say that was particularly a negative experience. I'm thinking more of, you know, if you do your homework, you get a packet of sweets or you do that, you know, in that kind of level of bribery. But, you know, when you're in a supermarket and you then go out and eat, that that's okay. I wouldn't view that in a negative kind of sense of the world. But yeah, I mean... There's lots of other ways, you know, just spending time with your children or doing activities with them or, you know, letting them do painting or, you know, something that they enjoy. It doesn't have to be necessarily food related. Brilliant. So let's jump to celiac disease then, because that's very common, but often quite hard to detect, isn't it? Do you come across that quite often? Um, yeah, I'm not a celiac expert, but I have seen celiac patients. There are quite a lot of celiac dietitians out there as well. Yeah, we do see them. It's basically an autoimmune disease that's caused by um, gluten. There's lots of people that cut out gluten from a child's diet, but without actually having a diet. And there's no reason to remove gluten from your child's diet unless they are diagnosed as a celiac. In terms of diagnosis, they normally go to doctors, they'll have a blood test, and we look for certain antibodies when, um, when they have that test. It's really important before that test that you don't cut out the gluten, because if you cut the gluten out from the test, like up to six weeks before, we be really important you get enough gluten in their diet six weeks before that test, the test will come back negative. So for a lot of parents, sometimes I find that the symptoms are so bad with celiacs and they might have a family history of it. They cut it out and then they don't want to reintroduce it to ever get the diagnosis. And it's a difficult condition to live with. It's lifelong. You know, it does a lot of damage to your gut as well. They can end up severely anemic. You have higher calcium requirements. So often you should be referred to a dietitian and they should have yearly appointments to go for all the nutrients to see that they're compliant with a gluten free diet. And you mentioned something there that parents can take gluten out of the diet. And there are lots of fashion fads at the moment, aren't there? Like you say, high protein, less gluten. What sort of things would you say to a parent? Don't worry about that. Yeah, I really wouldn't advise doing extreme diet, especially with children, because, again, I think it doesn't help. Once you start dieting and you start restricting food with children, it just doesn't create a healthy relationship with food. And unless your child's got an actual allergy to that particular food or they are celiac or there's other conditions going under, you're under a gastro team, you know, there's no reason to cut out whole food groups from your child's diet. And on the other end of the spectrum, what would you not recommend they add into the diet so I know there are fashions for vitamins and there are again all children between the age of six and five should have a multivitamin of a c and d d in particular especially through the winter we need 10 micrograms everyone in the whole country should be having that because we don't get enough sunlight but there's no reason to do extreme high dose vitamins at all a normal vitamin from a supermarket is absolutely fine. You don't need to spend a fortune on vitamins for your child. And if you're really worried about your child and they're showing signs, for example, of anemia, go to your doctor. You can ask for a blood test to get, um, you know, their nutrient levels checked. And if there are any deficiencies, your doctor will prescribe specific like iron tablets for your child. But otherwise, most children need is a general multivitamin, A, C and D up to the age of five and everyone having vitamin D right the way through adulthood as well. 
And what sort of signs would you be looking out for if there's a mum or a dad out there thinking, oh, I don't know if I should go to the doctor or not. They seem like a fussy eater, but they seem okay. What specific things would you be looking out for? So I would be checking their weight and height and making sure that they are growing along their centre lines. So they're continuing to follow them. I get a lot of parents that are very worried about their child being really, you know, small and stuff. But all centiles are basically that if you had 100 people lined up in a room, someone's got to be on the first centile, someone's got to be on the top centile, and someone's going to be 50% in the middle. If your child is tracking like my along the second centile, and they have since they were little, that's absolutely fine. They're not necessarily going to jump up to the 90th centile, that's okay. So keep an eye on your centiles. Most parents get a red book in the UK so they can see roughly where their child is. Things. So that would be my first cause. So if your child's dropping weight, in particular, we say faltering growth is normally a drop of two centiles. But again, it depends how far down your child is. If they're right at the bottom, then obviously dropping centiles is much more concerning. So do to speak to your doctor if your child, if your child is losing weight or not gaining any weight. Again, things like anemia, you're looking for extreme tiredness, really pale, all of those sort of symptoms. And again, constipation is another big one. So if your child's really constipated, do speak to your doctor as well. Thank you. I really appreciate what you've gone through there. Tell me, did you become a dietitian because your daughter had problems or you resolved your daughter's problems because you're a dietitian? Chicken or egg? <laughs> I, I resolved them because I was a dietitian. I didn't become a dietitian. I was a and, dietitian before. Yeah. Before and what drew you to wanting to be a dietitian? Oh, I actually used to work as an events manager until I was about 30. And then I got into like reflexology, nutrition, and I was a bit Oh, it's a bit soul destroyed by event management. I'd done it for about 10 years in my 20s. It was great fun, but it just, I didn't feel like I was helping anybody or doing anything useful. So I got more and more interested in nutrition. And I just thought, well, the only way I can do this full time is if I go back to uni and retrain. So at 30, I redid a degree in dietetics. In and how long was that? Four years. Yeah. Gosh, well, well done. And do people see you at home or in a surgery? Um, so I see people virtually. Gosh, that's interesting. So you can see all that you need to see over Zoom. Yes, yeah, most things. As long as my, as long as the um, parent has the weight and height. What a world we live in! <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. And I'm sure people will track you down if they need to. So now, because you're on the courageous mum, I'm going to ask you, what's a courageous thing that you've done in your life? Oh, I had to think hard about this one, but I was thinking about, I was linking it to being a mum as well. And I think probably the hardest thing we've been through was, so my little girl was born, well, my water went at 30 weeks, but she was born at 36 weeks. At the same time, my father-in-law was in intensive care. Um, he just had a kidney transplant. We weren't allowed to take her in to intensive care because they won't let you take a premature baby in. So I used to have to leave her with my mum and we lived down in Surrey and travelled all the way up to North London to intensive care back and forth and yeah sadly within two weeks of her being born he died and my husband suffered really badly from depression after losing his dad and everything else as well so I do remember feeling really really overwhelmed that was a really really hard hard time to go through when you're just a new parent and what do you think got you through it I think you have to go through it because you've got to look after a tiny little baby but yeah it definitely makes you resilient that must think, be a very messy time to look back on. Yeah, it is. It's really, really tough, really tough time. But it does make you realise that you can, if you can survive that, you can survive, survive most things. Mm. But I think that is partly why I had one child. 
for a lot of people, they have that newborn bubble sort of stage. And for me, that time just feels very traumatic. I found it very hard to ever bring myself to think, oh, let's do that again. But actually, probably it probably would have been fine second time around because you wouldn't have had that. But for me, reliving all of that and my pregnancy was really, really hard as well. Gosh, it sounds like you've gone through a lot of trauma and overcome it. Yes, exactly. Probably a lot to unpack there. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. You must have had to have a lot of courage around that time. Thank you. way to come into motherhood and what a full and rich bundle of advice she shared I've got no doubt that many of you will be able to relate to the stresses of children's diets so she's debunked a few myths and given us many reasons to keep cool at mealtimes no matter what's being thrown at us and perhaps quite literally at times pop down to the show notes to find Emma and you can book a free call to her And thank you for joining me. Keep the questions coming. I am taking note of them and I'm going to begin to answer them in little five minute podcasts. The more the merrier. So do email me on madelinestanny at icloud.com or thecourageousmama.com if that's easier to remember. I hope you've come away feeling equipped, empowered and encouraged. And I'll see you next time.